Hello, welcome to Injury Prevention Podcasts. My name is Rod McClure. I'm editor of the BMJ journal Injury Prevention. And each month I chat with a distinguished researcher or practitioner about topics of their interest. Today our conversation is with Professor Robert Thompson from the Department of Mechanics and Maritime Sciences at Chalmers University of Technology. Our conversation begins way back during PhD studies in mechanical engineering. It progressed through a career that crossed countries, that addressed grand challenges, that recognised the value of commitment to big visions and the need to link science and evidence to real-world solutions. And from there we reached a part of the conversation where we looked to the future. We started to look at side effects that might be eventuating from some of our solutions to other world problems like climate change, where the electrification of vehicles might be introducing into our transport system unintended consequences that reduce the safety of people on our roads. Let's start though from the beginning with our guest. Hello, Robert. Good morning, good afternoon. Rob, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm a a Canadian by birth, uh, grew up in Western Canada, and I went to the university first in Calgary, and then I did a a PhD at the University of British Columbia. And it's there where I got involved in road safety. Uh, I worked with the um, University of British Columbia, the UBC. It was the accident research team. And it was one of, at that time, one of 10 teams in Canada that was collecting um, car crashes, uh, data from fatal accidents. And so I was, uh, as a, I was a master's student first, and I got, got some part-time work, and then I was able to do actually a master's and a PhD project through the team's activities and connections to Transport Canada. And that opened up the world for me then to, uh, I came to Sweden uh, in 97 as a postdoc. And uh, as I say, it turned into a life sentence. So I'm, I've been here ever since. And certainly at that stage, Sweden was well recognized, wasn't it, as a leader in transport safety? Yeah, it was. It was definitely um, thinking about road safety. It was the, the place to go. When I was uh, invited as a postdoc, it was just at the start of the whole Vision Zero activity, and I was brought in as um, as a postdoc to look at uh, my, my 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 PhD research was on roadside barriers, and they were looking at, of course, single vehicle crashes are uh, typically about a third of all fatal crashes in Europe and North America, and so that that was sort of the uh, incentive for them to bring someone like me over. And then, uh, of course, once you get into the the system, you uh, find other opportunities. And I've been here ever since. I suspect there may be some similarities with there between the vast open spaces of the north of both Sweden and Canada and the single vehicle crashes may be somewhat related to that. Yeah, that's the. I think both countries have that challenge where you have a, 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 a sparse um, population, but a huge road network. And uh, what you could see in Sweden when I came over was that the majority of their single vehicle crashes, of course, are on the minor sort of what they they call the national roads. They're small two-lane, sometimes three-lane roads in the middle of the forest, and you just don't have the tax base to put every latest uh, wide road uh, in there. Uh, and so that it's, uh, it becomes um, a challenge both for the for the government but also for the driver because, of course, uh, you're driving these long distances, a bit of fatigue could settle in, and uh, you find yourself wandering off the road. Um, there was also a very interesting um, uh, 
uh, road design that uh, I guess you could say also appears in Canada where you have a two-lane road that becomes a three-lane road to allow some overtaking in certain areas. And there was a culture uh, in Sweden in the in the early 80s and 90s where they had made these what they call 13-meter roads. And it was just two, la- uh, two lanes, but very, very wide lanes. And so you could overtake a car and e- you would expect the car ahead of you to pull over to the right a bit. But then the approaching vehicle was also expected to pull over to their right. Of course, we're in right-hand traffic in Sweden. And uh, it works good if everybody's playing the game, but if the oncoming vehicle doesn't recognize that this person is <laughs> coming over and straddling the middle of the road, it becomes a problem for head-on crashes. So uh, you get, or if it doesn't become a head-on crash, it could very quickly lead to a single vehicle crash, even though it was precipitated by that oncoming vehicle. Uh, using the opportunity of very wide road, but very um, uh, loose uh, game rules. Yeah, your, your response there reminds me of... If- Two issues. One, a, a cartoon I saw once of a huge roundabout with absolutely no lanes, no rules, and no expectations. And people had to find their way through the roundabout uh, to where they wanted to go uh, in somewhat apparent chaos, but generally it worked. But I suspect the overall there'd be a few more crashes in that roundabout than the ones that you would design. So that brings me to another question a little bit. The world drives cars pretty much the same way. Uh, when you look at such other variation we've got in society, the, the road transport one is reasonably controlled, isn't it, circumscribed and pretty much understood, except not well enough understood for you just to let it run its own course. That's, a, that's a, actually an interesting observation because I've been recently working with some um, projects with the maritime and the aviation side, and there you can see it's very tightly scripted. You have uh, controllers and um, or um, port operations where you're communicating with the vessels. So you have a third party trying to direct the traffic, whereas really, as you say, the, the road system is well-defined. You've got lights and signs, but it, uh, it's totally up to the driver to follow those those um, should we say passive? There's not a, someone actively list talking into the ear, and I think that's one of the uh, uh, the challenges that you have this interpretation of what's the um, what is the actual uh, state of play in in your area. If you're driving on this empty road in the middle of nowhere, no cars are coming. Why not crank up the speed? Uh, so it's these ways that the, the the human operator interprets the the conditions, and I, and I think that's where. You really see the interest with um, what is the expectation the driver has for the road system and for the vehicle, and does the vehicle operator have the right expectations for the conditions? And of course, this is where you see the single vehicle crashes or head head-on crashes, where the driver has anticipated that they're in control. They don't understand that maybe the road is a little bit icy or that lane edge is closer than they perceive it to be. And then they uh, all of a sudden something doesn't happen the way they expect, and if they can't correct it, then they're in trouble. Which uh, is sort of where, to some extent, the self-explaining road theory comes from in Europe, isn't it? That the roads have yeah. to be very, very clear to the driver about what's expected of them at any particular point and what the likely risks are that they need to accommodate. Yeah, exactly. This is uh, and and when I started um, uh, over here and got introduced, this idea of, of the uh, you know the self-explaining road. It took me a second to really understand, okay, how is it self-explaining? But then when you start driving, you realize that how do I perceive speed? How do I perceive threats around me? Uh, how do I perceive how the vehicle is handling? 
Uh, and this is what's interesting now is that um, you have these new modern vehicles that are doing a great job of insulating us. You know, the higher quality materials and construction techniques, you don't hear the road noise and the wind noise. Uh, and in uh, where I come from in Canada, of course, when they make the larger highways, they try to put the roadside obstacles as far away as possible. And if you don't have that sort of nearness of periphery objects to give you the indication of speed. And so that's where... Geez, I can go on pretty fast. I can imagine uh, in Australia you have that situation as well. We have open areas, vi very few visual cues for the driver to perceive what is my actual speed until they look at the speedometer and go, whoops. Or feel the odd pothole in the rider. <laughs> exactly. So um, there must have been a big change for you, though, when you uh, moved at quite a young age from Canada to Sweden. Yeah, um, it's one of these questions that you get quite a bit as when you change countries. And one yeah. of the nice things for, for me was uh, the biggest change was really the language. <laughs> the the social culture, um, the, the general environment uh, is, is very similar. I uh, spent the last 10 years in Canada in Vancouver, where it's a rainy, <laughs> cloudy uh, climate. I moved to Gothenburg, the west coast of Sweden, where it's a rainy, cloudy climate. Very little snow in, in, uh, in the winter. We get, of course, down to zero a few times, but it's not like the Canadian winters that I, I grew up in the mountains in British Columbia. So I, I, I definitely miss that side of things. So I have to go further north, which is also surprising. You, you, everyone pictures Sweden as this country of snow, but Gothenburg is, uh, you know, snow-free, I'd say, uh, 350 days, 60 days a year. But as, as you say, the, uh, the, the was, it wasn't too hard to, to, to move in terms of the culture, and really the traffic is very similar. Um, of course, there's some signs I had to adapt to, but it's the, we were talking about earlier, about the long distances between cities, that there is this large uh, network of roads, large main highways, but then you have the smaller no um, uh, two-lane roads where people have uh, to travel between the smaller cities to the larger cities or get connected to the larger highway. And it's those smaller roads that, of course, are uh, a challenge for any road designer or, or traffic safety expert. So by the 90s, we were saying that road safety had become quite a, uh, a recognised, important, um, exciting challenge for somebody to take on. But it, it was really only about 20 years earlier than that that it was in its infancy, would you say? So yeah. you got into it quite early on in your career. Could you tell me a little bit about how you made those choices? Because it's, yeah. a lot of us don't find safety till we've finished our job and realised that we could have prevented our, uh, a lot of the problems that we'd created by our job. So how did yeah. you go straight into such a sophisticated area? <laughs> <laughs> you may be disappointed with the answer, but I, I, I did my I first did my bachelor's degree in the University of Calgary, uh, being a fresh-eyed you know high school graduate. I wanted to go into engineering, and uh, I, I ended up following my, uh, my my interest in mechanics. And then I thought um, in Calgary there's a large focus on oil and gas, and I realized oil and gas was not the, the route for me. And I thought transportation. Uh, and I was a motorcycle enthusiast, and I thought, you know, something related to transport would be fun. And when I went to Vancouver to look for work, I was kind of ex exploring opportunities. And then 87 is when I um, had graduated from university with my bachelor's. And then to get into the um, job market was difficult. There was a, a stock market crash October. Uh, so I ended up going by being forced back into graduate studies. And then I, uh, luck would have it that I had met uh, the professor that was in charge of the accident research team, Frank Naven. And through him and uh, his, uh, his colleagues there, 
it was really uh, infectious, uh, the, the excitement. And you could also see um, both an interesting topic. I'm coming from mechanics side, so I was looking at, okay, how do the vehicles deform? How can we calculate things from this? But at the same time, you could see that you're making an impact. I'm going to contribute to um, society here in some way. So you can actually, uh, it's uh, correct, an injustice, if you want to put it that way. It's kind of a hard way to say it, but um, it is, you know, a ch an opportunity to make a dent. And you can see things that go wrong. And when I started as a, uh, doing this part-time work as a, an accident investigator, you could see how the, the pattern starting that. Why did that person turn here? Or why did that pedestrian choose to cross there? And then you start thinking about, geez, you know, maybe I can fix that. And it's this, uh, I think that's the, for me, the, one of the real exciting opportunities with, with traffic safety, road safety, is that you get to see potentially the outcomes of your research fairly quickly. Uh, and you can also feel that you're contributing, you're saving lives, you're saving, reducing injuries. So, uh, I, you know, I hadn't thought about this for a long time, but when you ask the question, it's sort of, yes, that's, that's what it is. But it really started by chance. You know, you have to write, meet the right person, people at the right time because you don't really, in, in a formal education system that I was going through, you didn't get interested to, to safety. You had to get it by indirect means. Um, now, of course, it's uh, that was you know, the, the 80s, but now I think we're seeing more and more opportunities, the UN having their decade of action, things like that. So it becomes much more of a public uh, public you know, media activity. But it is interesting to see how we can attract people to it. And we, uh, we have a master's program here and we have a, a vehicle safety, vehicle traffic safety course. And it's always interesting to see we get the students registered in our, our automotive program, but we also get the students from the biomechanical side. We get some students from the applied mechanics and also from civil engineering that are looking for elective courses and vehicle safety does attract uh, some, some good people. Yeah, it's fantastic to hear somebody who actually graduated in 1987 feel so passionate <laughs> about that topic, um, <laughs> which is it's a common theme, I think, in injury prevention people who are still excited and passionate about their work is that they see that direct application and uh, there's a quick feedback back, uh, turnaround of their, their ideas for it to, to some value. The other thing that seems to me to be a common theme amongst engineers I speak to is that notion, and I'm saying this in the context of where did injury prevention come from, uh, engineers who actually can see that they've created situations because they've designed cars, they've designed roads, they're used to creating situations, not just waiting for the world to create them for them. So you can create a safe situation as much as you can create a dangerous one. And that pro that, that proximity of, of, of you being in control of the space as an engineer, as opposed to the other branch of, of thinking about injury is that it's all out there, can't do anything about it, it's just an accident, it's chance. Whereas there's not a lot of chance in building a bridge. It's design, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was one of the um, really, I would say, refreshing ideas that when, when I first heard about Fission Zero, of course, uh, I came from Canada, didn't have any experience with it at all. And I thought, okay, they want to have zero fatalities. How the hell are they going to do that? But then when you start getting involved in understanding the background to it, and one of the things that um, they point out is that they don't want to cause injuries or fatalities due to an error, human error, and they don't stop that human error at, at the driver. They talk about who designed the road, who designed the bridge. And I think that's the, as you say, how do we create the space? And so as an engineer, 
as Canadians, we have our iron ring to remind us of a responsibility that we have to make sure that we don't create the worst situation. And uh, my PhD working with guardrails, that was the, the whole idea is that we're putting an obstacle between the vehicle and something in the side of the road. And the idea is that that obstacle has to be a less severe uh, situation than what the, the obstacle inside the road would be. And that's uh, an important concept for us to think about that as an engineer, we can design everything and say, okay, this is going to work. And we forget about the operator that comes along. And as we talked about earlier, what is my expectations here? Oh, this is a nice straight road. I'll just drive whatever this, the car can do and not realize their limitations and the car's limitations and the road's limitations that can cause an instability and lead to a problem. So that this um, idea of Vision Zero to put, um, I won't say blame, but responsibility on the designer of the vehicles and the, and the roads, as well as the driver, I think is a really important um, issue for us to take, take to heart. I remember hearing a presentation from a Swedish engineer designer looking at barriers and then refining ways that you can run barriers more cheaply across a road system the size that you've got and then creating the, the wire rope barrier instead of the hard barrier and then accommodating motorcyclists. And so there's quite a lot of refinement that goes on past the concept. But you've started off with a very radically new concept in some ways with Vision Zero, haven't you? It's almost a philosophy uh, first and then a practice that derives from that. Yeah, yeah. And I think that that, if we all use that philosophy as the, the sort of the, the methodology that we're going to work towards, um, the idea when I came, my PhD thesis was to really to look, or the postdoc activity I was looking at uh, was to look at, you know, how, what's the, the issues with, um, with roadside barriers and where the injuries start? How can we identify, for example, what is the safest maximum speed for, for vehicles? Um, and if we put up, a, if we have a, a two lane road, what is the highest um, allowable or ex uh, acceptable speed of an, uh, a frontal impact? And if you start thinking of, uh, about designing from that point of view, then you can start setting up frameworks for, okay, we, we have to design the road so that we don't have more than, for example, 70 kilometer an hour roads without um, a, some sort of a, a separation barrier to avoid cars from encroaching on the other lane. And, and when you start seeing how these... Uh, you know, in North America, when I came over, I thought it was a very bold experiment to put this wire rope in the middle of this long section of road. Uh, they alternated, so there was passingly opportunities for both travel directions. But when I thought about that, geez, they're putting it up, that's like an experiment. But at the end of the experiment, they had went from, I can't remember, there was uh, not, um, they don't have huge traffic fatalities here in Sweden, but they went from a few uh, fatalities every year to zero. And the interesting side effect was that the average speed of travel between the two endpoints was higher with this mid-barrier, which everyone was scared this is going to restrict the travel flow, there's going to be people stuck behind the trailer, whatever. Didn't happen. Uh, the average speed was not, not hugely faster, but it was a little bit faster. So that squashed any ideas that this is going to be bad for, for, the, for the environment or bad for um, traffic or anything like that. And the, the, the positive side of it was by taking this bold experiment, saying that we don't want any frontal collisions here. Let's put a, a barrier in the middle of the road. It's flexible. Yeah, it can bend a little bit, but it's these events are rare. So we tolerate that when they do have those uh, events, that there's nothing probably going to come in the opposite direction. And the experiment was so successful, they've been spreading it to the rest of Sweden. Mm. And I think you can see that we've had this dramatic drop in fatalities. Yeah. And... Uh 
it's not just to the rest of Sweden because those barriers have gone up in a lot of other parts in the world as well. Exactly, exactly. And, and so I think this is the, 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 the interesting thing is that someone has to make a, a bold um, experiment once in a while. And the Vision Zero, I think, was one of the things that could kind of give at least the Swedish society, uh, government, some sort of a, a place to stand and say, we're doing this because we're addressing that. And here's a way we can move forward. It's a bold vision, but it's also Sweden were totally committed to it, weren't they? A lot of people come up with yeah. good ideas, but don't, aren't prepared to commit themselves uh, or their budgets or their social structures to that idea. And, and Sweden certainly pushed it through and pushed ahead, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, and it, yeah, I think it's and it's really is a, been a, a great. Um, I think it's been a great showcase for the for the world to say, here's what you do if your government and your society uh, climb on board and, and do it. And it's I, it wasn't long after Swedish started doing Sweden started doing it. You could see the rest of the world adopting. We want Vision Zero. We want Vision Zero. And I think that it's um, it's really has been. Um, a way to do it. But you, as you say, you have to commit to it. You can't say, we want visions here on Monday to Friday <laughs> and forget other weekends. Or, or even, and I'm being a bit cheeky here, we want vision zero, but in our own terms. We'll use the labels, <laughs> yes. but not the fundamentals that go with it. Exactly, exactly. No, I think that this is, uh, um, everybody, every country, I think it has a, some sort of a road safety plan, but it's just a question of how, how rigorous are you going to be with it uh, mm. and really implement it? As you say, <laughs> we put our label on it and it's sort of vision zero light, uh, but we, we, mm. we drop the light, we just leave the vision zero in front. So we've got a clear sense of your passion um, and you've talked about the future in, in the sense of your continuing to train and bring on new people to do work in this space with who've got futures themselves. But from where you've been and you've clearly got global sort of international uh, and, and many years of thinking about this topic. Is it obvious where we need to go next or, or are we all still searching for the for the way forward in, in injury prevention oh. in general but road safety in particular perhaps? Yeah, yeah, that's um, uh, you know, it's something you think about all the time. Um, I can definitely see my background. I, I did most of my work in uh, sort of crashworthiness and that type of thing uh, and I can see that the... Um, uh, that type of a uh, initiative it is is reducing, and we're seeing a much more uh, push to the automated systems, so active safety sensors and automated vehicles and things like that. Uh, so I can see that there is definitely for for injury prevention, there's definitely got a lot of opportunities there to to reduce the the severity of the crashes in the first place. Um, I see a lot of challenges that we haven't really um, woken up to uh, with the new electrification. Uh, and this is for, coming from my, my crashworthiness background. I can see that uh, we are, we're moving now to these electric vehicles uh, for, for, for good reasons, but it comes at a cost now. We're putting these very heavy battery packs if we want to have the same range that we're accustomed to. When we fill up our tank, we want to be able to go 500 miles. Uh, we don't get that without having about a 500 kilogram battery. So we're not doing any weight reduction by switching to electric vehicles. We're, we're stuck at it, but we've shifted the placement of this mass, instead of having the mass in the drivetrain, which is sort of, a, in a way, a free-coupled mass in the vehicle structure, now we have this battery pack that has to be protected. It's pretty much the best place for it is under the floor of the vehicle. So we create this very stiff and heavy vehicle passenger compartment, which is great for injury pr protection when you think about intrusion and things like that. But 
we haven't really seen what are the consequences to the uh, the crash environment because these heavy, stiff vehicles could start causing problems for other vehicles on the road. Um, an anecdote I heard from a colleague that does testing, uh, there's a new um, compatibility test that's being used by Euro NCAP. It's called the Moving Progressive Deformable Barrier. And he noted that there was an electric vehicle they tested that just threw that barrier across the room so that we have now some uh, electrification has created uh, opportunities, but there may be some side effects we haven't got control of. So I think some of the structural aspects of um, vehicle crash worthiness has, has to be looked at still. Um, I'm looking for some opportunities there, of course. But I think that that we can have implications on the injury prevention uh, when I was doing a lot of my work on compatibility, we could see how the pulse of the of the of the, the forming vehicles that can really affect the injury uh, outcomes. And we wanted I can see a very positive result. All those years of research I was doing and working with regulation development, we could see the industry uh, working behind the scenes in positive ways to to avoid regulation. They were kind of <laughs> doing what we wanted them to do anyways. Um, but now we have um, a new uh, area where we have these heavy electric vehicles, and we might want to just take take a look on what how that's going to affect the injury outcomes. But I do see a, a real opportunity for injury prevention with the, um, uh, the, of course, the automated vehicles and how to avoid the crashes in the first place. And then we get into this issue of where, where does the driver end and where does the vehicle begin and responsibility. And I think that's going to be fun fun terrain for people to navigate. Um, it sort of gets outside of my area of expertise, but I can definitely see that um, there's different directions we can go and, and um, it's not clear to me which one is the best yet. No, and, and the solution to those problems, if they reflect the way you describe them, covers regulation, uh, human-machine interface, um, I guess it's socio-technical systems really, aren't they, as well as engineering ones. So yeah. it really is an exciting next millennium or next yeah. decade anyway. Exactly. And I think the one nice thing that uh, was kind of nice, I had this um, foray into the maritime environment last year. Uh, and there I got came across a very interesting concept, which we hadn't thought about. I hadn't thought about from a, um, a road safety point of view, but it, it kind of touched on your earlier question. And there they talk about, the, with all the instrumentation on the, on the bridge, and you have, of course, the crew, it's a teamwork. And the, the automated equipment of the, the ship itself is part of the team. And I think that that is the next step for road safety, is to think about the teamwork between the driver and the vehicle in terms of the operation. Because until now, it's always been vehicle, driver, environment. Uh, so there was a very clear uh, firewall between the driver and the vehicle. Now that line is getting um, a little fuzzy. And if we can think about the, the vehicle driver team, how do we work that team better? Uh, and as you say, it's this hum human machine interface. How do we design that uh, based on our, our knowledge of the, the strengths and weaknesses of, of us? When you've got an intelligent machine and a sleeping driver, it <laughs> almost turns the trade user and, uh, and vehicle on its head, doesn't it? Yes, it definitely well, does. Let's leave that conversation here because it. Uh, I think we've just opened up uh, a lot more ideas than we yes. started. With. <laughs> but uh, exactly. it's been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. It's really interesting for me to see how your career progressed and and how it translated and accommodated and how it's it's built and designed um, the world around you as much as it's designed you. So, I think you're a nice example of what we've been talking about. Well, thank you very much. 
And it's been a very nice conversation. Thank you for this. Yeah. Look forward to catching up with you again. Definitely. We've been listening today to a conversation with Professor Rob Thompson from Chalmers University of Technology, Sweden. For those of you wishing to learn more about some of the topics we've discussed, I'd invite you to visit the journal's website at injuryprevention.bmj.com. You can listen to Injury Prevention podcasts on the first Thursday of each month. These can be found on your preferred platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Thank you and see you next month.